You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading is from John chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and was and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is the word of the Lord. You can all be seated. Well, tonight is a torch night, so if you are fourth through sixth grade and would like to think through this text that you just heard read with some adult leaders and with your peers, y'all get to sneak out with Gail and Patrick Gozier right now. Um, I have drunk approximately like a gallon and a half of green tea with honey over the past 24 hours, and I'm like using this weapons grade uh, throat spray, Uh, but... If you would, would you join with me in just praying that I'm able to preach this evening? Father, we come to you this evening assembled as your people under your word, and we are here to hear from you. We are here with a microphone to your mouth to hear from your word for what you would have for our lives this evening. So even as we have head colds and flu and all of these other things. We are reminded of our weakness, but your great power, your might, and your grace. So we pray for that this evening. We pray that your word might be able to be heard tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Well, have you ever been in enemy territory? Perhaps not like in a war. Some of you might have been in military conflict, but if you've ever traveled to like an away game for one of your favorite sports teams, perhaps you know the feeling. Uh, for two years in college, I went to every home-and-away football game for the University of Texas. And I know I, like, everyone hates Texas. It's like rooting for the Death Star or something. Uh, and we would totally feel that in a lot of places where we'd go. Uh, like Arkansas, man, they, they hate Texas. And then like Ohio State. I went to a Texas-Ohio State game in Columbus, Ohio. And the two schools had never played each other before in their histories. And like the moment we got off the plane, it was like, 48 straight hours of just verbal abuse, right? 
And in my fleshly response, even though those two trips were like 13 and 14 years ago, every time like Arkansas or Ohio State is playing on TV, like I root against them because of the way they treated me, who is just a fan of two football teams, right? But this is what we do as humans. If people are nice to us, then we'll be nice back to them. I love Nebraska football. They were great. They were hospitable. They like invited us into their tailgates and gave us steak sandwiches. And now I will always root for Nebraska. But when people don't like us or they treat us unfairly, if someone cuts me off on the highway, then I have to honk and get right up on their bumper and make sure that they know that they have offended me, the main character of Albuquerque. Uh, If someone insults us on social media, our first impulse is to just lob the grenade right back. But this is not the way of the gospel and it's not the way of Christ. We read in the prologue of John 1, John writes, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus doesn't just get rejected by the away fans. He gets rejected at the home game, too. He's wearing the same color t-shirt, and yet we'll see throughout the rest of the book. His people and the world will see who he is and kill him. So beginning here in chapter 5, there's a transition. Whereas we've seen hesitation with Jesus, people even coming to Jesus for perhaps not the right reasons, like we saw last week, moving into this next section, there begins to be more explicit, outright, and even official opposition against him. And yet, how is Jesus going to respond? I really can't wait to get into these next chapters with you all, so let's just get after it. We're going to look at our text this evening under two main headings, the, the compassion of Jesus and then the response of humanity. Let's, let's read these first five verses first again and then make some initial observations. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Arama- Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, in verse 1, John tells us there's a feast of the Jews, but he doesn't, he doesn't tell us which one. And the commentators are divided on which feast this is, and even if it matters for us to know. I think what's going on here is just, it's just the Sabbath feast. While nearly every other feast or festival was an annual thing, the Sabbath was a weekly thing. In some sense, every Saturday, the Sabbath for the Jews set the tone for the kind of uh, reverence or devotion that would be expected for every other feast. And so John has this feast. He tells us at the end of verse 9 that this day at least was the Sabbath. And he has this feast as the header for this new section, which he's going to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of at least four other feasts, going through chapter 10. All of the other festivals, all of the other feasts flow out of this one, out of the Sabbath. And while we'll talk more about the Sabbath next week, what was it? Well, it was, it was a daily reminder to God's people that God was God and they were not. It's a day of rest. So while more fields could be plowed, more crops could be harvested, more money could be made if the people would just work seven days a week instead of six, the Sabbath is a time to rest. God gave the Sabbath as a gift to his people. For, uh, for them to have a time to say, we trust you to provide. We trust you that we don't need seven days to make enough money. We trust 
you in our work. We trust you in our rest. We trust that you are God and we are not. So more on that later. But in the northeast section of the wall in old Jerusalem, there's a pool. And this pool was, as archaeologists have now found in the last hundred years, this pool is fed by reservoirs and even likely, or likely even uh, underground springs going back to the days of Solomon. And occasionally these springs would cause the water to ripple. They'd move about and superstitious tradition held that there was an angel storing the water. And the first person who would, who would jump into this rippling water would be healed. And these kinds of superstitions are not at all uncommon to we humans. Christian and non-Christian history is filled with similar things, like pray really quickly if you see Jesus' face in the Velveeta, right? Or uh, drink from the Holy Grail, or find the Fountain of Youth, and you'll live forever. I just Googled this morning uh, religious places of healing around the world. You can do that if you'd like. And it's crazy, wild stuff all over the world in all kinds of different religious traditions, often having to do with water. Well, evidently, this had become a thing in Jerusalem too. Now, some of you, I actually see many of your heads down, like looking at your Bibles, because I think you're like, hang on there, Sherman. Like, this wasn't a superstitious thing. Like, an angel, an angel was actually doing this. An angel was the one that was stirring the waters. In fact, verse 4 actually says so. And now that you mention it, Eric didn't read verse 4 and you didn't either. Well, you guys are astute Bible people. Here's the short version. Most English traditions or most English translations of the Bible don't include verse 4. If you look at the ESV, if that's what you're reading from, what we have been reading from, it just goes from verse 3 to verse 5. But included there at the end of verse 3 is a footnote. If you look down at the footnote in the ESV, it says, Some manuscripts insert wholly or in part, quote, Waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the, of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So we'll talk more about these footnotes. We'll talk more about original manuscripts and the trustworthiness of the scriptures when we get to chapter 8. Uh, but what's going on here is that verse 4 isn't in the earliest copies of the Gospel of John. It begins that little little section, what is verse 4 in some of your Bibles, or at least showing up in the footnote of the rest of your Bibles, uh, begins showing up many centuries later. So, centuries later edition that John likely did not write. So, most English Bibles don't include it because it wasn't in the original manuscripts. So, while an angel wasn't the one stirring the waters, this is probably at least what the, what the people believed was happening. And just like similar places in modern day, once a place gets a reputation for its healing power, it's really difficult to like put the toothpaste back in the tube. Especially when something seems unexplainable, like a stirring and swirling pool. Like it happens maybe once or twice a year and something strange seems to be going on. The, the tradition then can just become impossible to stop. So because of all of this, the pool is surrounded by tons of people who wanted to be healed. John tells us the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, this would likely be a scene that we aren't even ready to imagine also, especially for those paralyzed. And what would have been true for the man who was likely paralyzed from at least the waist down, likely a paraplegic for 38 years, unless people like these had close friends or family to take care of them, 
they would have been unable to care for themselves in many ways, including issues of personal hygiene. The mat that this man is lying on is perhaps the most disgusting thing that you could even begin to dream of, seeing, smelling, or at least even certainly touching. But it was all that he owned, and it was even how disgusting it probably was, better than lying in the dirt. Yet the crowds of social outcasts, the sick, they're here because they've heard this rumor that if you can just be the first one in the water, then you'll be healed. It's a miserable, it's a sad scene that Jesus finds himself walking through. But unlike us, who would likely just, we kind of know of that area of town, and we'd likely take the longer route around it because of just kind of the, just the miserableness of that part of town, Jesus walks right through it. Looking at these folks who were created by God with dignity because they are bearing his image, he walks right through. And then out of all of these people near the pool, Jesus looks at, identifies, and moves towards a man individually and personally. And in verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, on the surface, that's like a ridiculous question, right? It's like you're like waiting for a friend to finish their marathon and they cross the finish line. You're like, hey, you thirsty? They're like, yeah. Or you, you like approach a guy on the side of the road and he's standing with the hood of his car up and it's smoking and you walk up to him and you're like, car trouble? And he's like, you think? Big gulps, huh? Well, this guy could have said, like, you think? I'm here, aren't I? I'm at the pool. And not to mention, look at me. But he says, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool and the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. To which Jesus replies, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now this is pretty atypical for the kinds of healings that Jesus usually performs. Generally, people come to Jesus with a request. They ask for healing, even if, like we saw last week, they don't have the best worshipful motives. So while it's true that the man had to believe that Jesus actually healed him, he had to eventually stand up, John isn't highlighting this man's faith. Maybe Jesus told him to walk, he like looked down at his toes and he wiggled his toes for the first time in 38 years and he's like, hey, it worked. And he stood up and walked. But he wouldn't have had any reason to believe that Jesus had power to heal him. We'll see in a few verses that he didn't even know who he was. Some rando walked up and said, hey, get up, get up, walk. And then he's like, okay, and he did. All he assumed when Jesus asked if he wanted to be healed was that Jesus was talking about the pool of water. Hey, do you want to be the first one to get into the pool of water? And he's like, yeah, I want to, but I can't. And Jesus just sidesteps that and just tells him to walk. But like last week, this is no faith healing What John does seem to be highlighting is that the light has come into darkness. Like last week, his healing is announcing the reversal of the curse of Genesis 3. The kingdom of God is now making little pockets, little spheres of inside the kingdom of man, the kingdom of darkness. The Messiah and his kingdom are here, and the kingdom is about displaying the compassion of God, displaying the grace of God, the love of God. And the initiating, saving, and healing power of God. What we have right here is a visible example of what Jesus will later tell his disciples in chapter 15. That you did not choose me, 
but I chose you. This man wasn't like displaying extraordinary faith in the Messiah as he walked through. He was just probably looking down and just kind of upset that he wasn't able to get to the water. And Jesus comes to him, initiates, and heals him. It's a visible example of what John would later say in 1 John 4, that this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. It's really easy for us to return niceties to people who are nice to us. I like Nebraska fans. But Paul tells us that the gospel is that while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. He initiates, he moves toward, he dies for his enemies. And if we're honest with ourselves, left to ourselves, we really don't want anything to do with God. We wish that he didn't exist. We don't love him, left to ourselves. We're all, like this man, spiritually paralyzed, unable to walk, unable to see him for who he is. But then Christ, in his grace, in his compassion, he just like forces his way in. He confronts us with who he is and he says, Listen, do you want to be healed? Which seems like, uh, like for us, just as much as this man, like, you think? Yeah, I'd like that. But if we're really honest with ourselves, the question isn't always yes. From far away, way over there, Jesus looks pretty attractive. We like what he's giving. We like what he's offering. We like the meaning that he's able to offer and even give to us. Even if we've professed faith in him, we like to, however, just keep him back there. Keep him at an arm's distance where he's nice and safe. We don't actually want him to come in and actually heal all of us. Heal the parts of our life that we're just kind of content to just remain broken, remain sick. We like the idea of heaven, the kinds of things that Christ can give us, but we don't actually want all of his transformative healing. We don't want him to touch that area of our lives. I actually kind of like the way that I am in that area of my life, and I, that part is kind of off limits. Or if you're not a Christian, again, like last week, perhaps you like the idea of Jesus. You're kind of cool with his philosophy and his compassion and his method of teaching. But you know, to actually profess faith in him, to actually say, yes, I want the healing that you can give. To say yes to that would actually mean your whole life turning upside down. So to all of us, the Christian and the non-Christian, one pastor says this, if you want Christ, you can have him. It's that simple. The having him is that simple. It's the wanting him that's hard. So this is a question that confronts us. Do you want to be healed? If you're a Christian, Jesus has come to heal all of you. All of it, to cleanse you by his word, to present you in splendor without any spot or wrinkle. And this is for your walking around joy. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't stay on the mat, the filthy mat. Stand up and walk, follow him. Keep seeking him throughout the week by reading his word. Join us in our GCs and our discipleship groups. Be willing to share the deeper parts of your life that you haven't really wanted to talk about. Don't just, don't 
Okay, I was about to say, don't, don't just ask for prayer for your great aunt who's sick. You can do that. We want to pray for your great aunt who's sick. But don't just keep it at your great aunt who is sick. Invite others into the deeper, more intimate, more just parts of your life that you want to keep uh, closed off, but that Jesus has come to heal. Ask for prayer for your marriage that has gotten really, really hard and difficult. Ask for prayer and accountability with stewarding your money and debt, things that are embarrassing. Ask for prayer and accountability with covetousness or laziness or with lust or pornography or your sexuality. These are things, all of them, that Jesus has come in to heal and restore to the way that it was before our fall in Genesis 3. Take up your bed and walk. Follow him. Perhaps the other folks sitting around the pool that day, paralyzed or blind, they didn't see what Jesus did. In fact, we read that he removed himself. A lot of people didn't probably even realize what Jesus had done when he walked through that day. They didn't know who he was, what he was about. But if you're not a Christian, and you've been joining us for the past few months in our time together in John, you are seeing Christ more clearly. You are seeing Christ for who he is and more clearly than even the man who was healed that day. Perhaps even more clearly than his disciples up into the resurrection. You are seeing Christ very clearly. So don't keep ignoring him or putting off the day when you might uh, consider him more seriously. Consider him tonight. He has created you. He loves you. He's come to heal. Respond to him. Let, Let tonight be the night of life, of walking around joy, of healing from paralysis, where you might stand up and walk when he turns your life upside down by his life and by his death. If you have questions about what that means, about what that looks like, if you're a Christian or non-Christian, what it means to follow him for the first time or ongoingly now after following him for 30 years, come talk to us after the service. Talk to any Christian around you or Clint or I, after the service, perhaps we'll have a bit more uh, vibrating larynxes for you uh, that we can speak more words, but we would love to speak these words of life that Christ gives. Now, another question for us is this. If Jesus was going to heal this man all along, and he knew from eternity past that he was going to heal this man, why didn't he do so in many of the other trips that he had come to in Jerusalem? Why let him go just another year in paralysis? Or even, why did God allow this man to be paralyzed in the first place? And the answer to that question is very simply, I don't know. What we can say is that to a certain degree, there is sickness, there is pain, there is paralysis, there is even natural disasters and death because we humans have led a rebellion of this world against the God who has created it. And the worldview of the Bible is that the world sits under a curse from God. And now, in its natural disasters and in its death and in its cancer, the world is groaning with pains of childbirth, awaiting a a second birth, awaiting the return of Christ to give it newness. Marcy and I were at the Village Church in 2010 when John Piper came from Minneapolis to preach one Sunday, 
in response to the shocking news to that church that their pastor, Matt Chandler, had been given a diagnosis of what looked to be terminal brain cancer. And Piper said, he asked the congregation that day, he said, why does Matt have brain cancer? Because of my sin. Now, what Piper was saying is not that John Piper one day acted in a selfish manner or he lost his temper with his wife or something and so like a minute later Matt Chandler got brain cancer. That's not what he meant. But that brain cancer exists in the first place because of the sinful rebellion that we all participate in. Every human participates in. But again, God loves the world and he's not content to just condemn it. He doesn't just send another natural disaster or brain cancer after brain cancer after brain cancer until finally all of us rebels are just eliminated. This is not his MO. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. He desires to heal and save. He desires to redeem humanity out from under the curse. But why does he allow people to remain in chronic suffering, especially his children? Why? Why does he do this? I've quoted Joni Erickson Tata before, but if you're unfamiliar with her, you should just really gobble up everything that she's written. She became a Christian after a diving accident left her a quadriplegic 50 years ago. And while it sounds strange, she says that over the past five decades, she's actually grown to love her wheelchair. Not that she won't give one nanosecond of thought of looking back to those days when she was in a wheelchair, when she's running and dancing for joy with Christ for eternity. But she says, all combined, I began to see that there are more important things in life than walking and having use of your hands. It sounds incredible, but I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than to be on my feet without him. But whenever I try to explain it, I hardly know where to begin which is exactly the same kind of thinking as James and as Paul and as Peter and basically the entire New Testament, that as Christians, we shouldn't pray for suffering. I wouldn't have counseled teenage Joni Erickson Tata to pray for this diving accident and paralysis, but that we can be thankful for it. We can be thankful for suffering because if God allowed it or brought it for our increased joy and faith in him, and we can trust him. In chronic sickness, in chronic pain or disease, or even a short-term head cold, we can be thankful for these things. I'm, I'm reminded that I am not self-sufficient. I can't just, the first time you feel that little tinge of pain in the back of your throat, just snap your fingers and make it go away. You gotta like wait it out for 10 days or something. I'm reminded that this life and this body is not all that there is. So if you're a Christian and you've been dealing with sickness or pain for five days or for five decades, hear this. One, God sees. He knows. As Jesus has shown us in the first four chapters of John, Jesus knows you intimately and deeply. He's not oblivious to your suffering. He's not blind to it. He knows and he loves you. 
Two, God has promised to work this for your good. And that's not just like some trite refrigerator magnet or crocheted throw pillow. That is reality. Joni Erickson Tata says that God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. He permits, he is allowing that autoimmune disease. He's allowing the cancer. He's allowing the infertility or the back pain. All of which he hates. He's allowing it for your joy to be found in him. He's allowing it in his goodness and wisdom so that your joy, that your faith might be rooted and anchored in him for who he is and not just your continued good circumstances or a healthy body. And a deepening understanding of that is what allows some of the greatest joy that you can ever observe in godly, mature Christians who have suffered and yet have joy in Christ despite their suffering. Or perhaps, like we said last week, because of it. So just as we read yesterday in the Read Scripture plan from Psalm 13, though David has tons of questions, though David, to David, it looks like evil is winning, it looks like God has gone silent, both in his life and in the world, David knows deep down he hasn't. God is there and he's good. David asks questions, but he doesn't doubt God's goodness. He ends Psalm 13 by saying this, but, but all of these, where, where are you, God? How long? After all these questions, he says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Through it all, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. But also, a third thing for those suffering chronically, know this, resurrection is coming. I can't wait to go to the next week, continuing on in John chapter 5 as we talk and think more about the resurrection. But while God is allowing this pain today, he won't forever. Last week on Twitter, I read a pastor write this. He wrote, I talked to my 50-year-old friend today at church whose young son died last year. And this 50-year-old man, he said, the next 30 years are going to be the hardest of the next trillion And then the pastor says, he wasn't laughing or being coy, but there was hope in his eyes. Deep resurrection hope. For every Christian, for all of us, the next 10 or 30 or 70 years are going to be the hardest of the next trillion years for you. For some of us, it's going to be harder than others. For some of us, it's going to involve more suffering than others. But know this, Christian. However many years you have left on this earth, they will be the hardest of the next trillion, but then consider the next trillion. Hope in the Lord, hope in the resurrection, and let's, if the Lord gives us another week, let's come back next Sunday and think more about it together. If you'd like some more good book recommendations, in addition to like anything and everything that Joni Erickson Tata has written, uh, if you're wrestling with some of these difficult questions of the problem of suffering, the problem of, problem of or the so-called problem of evil in the world, just let me know, and I'd love to pass along some other good books for you. All right, I've only left myself a few minutes to get to the second half of our chapter. We saw the compassion of Jesus. Now let's see the response of the people. 
Uh, earlier in the week, I printed our liturgy and I asked Eric to read through verse 17, but we're going to let next week pick up verse 16 and 17. For now, let's read the second half of verse 9 all the way through 15 again. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So the guy stands up. He rolls up his mat and is maybe like skipping around Jerusalem for the first time in nearly four decades. But the only problem is it's the Sabbath. Now this isn't actually a problem, but the Jewish leadership had made it a problem. God's people were to rest from their normal work on Saturdays. Like if you were a farmer, don't farm on Saturday. If you're a weaver, don't weave. Take off work for a day. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord that he'll provide and take a day of rest just to enjoy him. But by this time, there were 39 different categories of work that were now outlawed. They were prohibited on the Sabbath and carrying things like this mat was one of them. So rather than seeing a man who hadn't walked in 38 years and rejoicing with him, perhaps even your ears, your eyes perking up and saying, wait a minute, the lame are walking? The Messiah is here. Where is he? Where is his kingdom? Instead of all that, this self-appointed Sabbath traffic cop yells, hey, what are you doing with your mat, man? Now what follows between the man and the Jewish leadership John doesn't paint the guy in the same kind of way that he'll later paint the blind man with the leadership in John 9. This guy never really bothered to find out who Jesus was. We find out that Jesus like removed himself, but he wasn't too concerned with like finding out what just happened. And he seems to blame the fact that he's carrying anything at all on someone else. He's like, hey, why are you carrying that mat? He's like, I don't know why I'm carrying this mat. Some dude told me to. He's like blaming others. But then Jesus later tracks him down again in the temple to make sure that he knows who he was. And he finds him in verse 14 and says, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now we'll see in John 9, we'll see in John 9 that clearly all sickness, all disabilities aren't always the result or consequence of sin. But the Bible certainly does have a category for God using a lack of health in someone to lovingly discipline his children, to lovingly grab their attention off of just their physical circumstances. And that could be what's going on here. In which case, it's even more grace that Jesus walks up, identifies, and heals this guy. That perhaps a man who God has been trying to get his attention for 38 years Finally, Jesus walks up to him and says, hey man, it's time. It's time to look to the Lord. Stand up, buddy. Let's walk. Let's go. But because I think that's a really rare category, possible but rare, meaning those struggling with chronic illness, chronic disease, ought to at least consider whether there's some ongoing, hardened, unrepentant sin in their life that God might be trying to grab your attention from or with. 
I think it's right that we shouldn't assume that that's what God is doing, both here and in your own lives. So because of that, what Jesus is doing here is more likely a warning to the man of eternal paralysis, eternal destruction, something worse. Meaning he's not saying, hey, butter, hey buddy, you better not ever steal or lie again or God's going to paralyze you again. But he's saying, like, what's worse? What could possibly be worse than 38 years of sitting by yourself in your own filth? Eternal destruction. The only thing worse of not being, than, not, than not being able to walk is to not be able to walk for eternity. And that's what Jesus is warning him of. He sees that this guy is still seemingly indifferent to Christ, even after all that he's done. And he's saying, don't remain in your sin. Don't remain indifferent to me. Repent, turn, turn from yourself. Repent and turn and follow me. Walk after me now or you'll be unable to walk for eternity. So Jesus, he initiates with the broken. He heals out of compassion and he invites sinners to follow him, to walk. And we're not sure if this man is, if this man, uh, if he's going to tell the Jewish leadership in verse 15 that Jesus, that it was Jesus. We're not sure if it's like out of joy and out of repentant response to Jesus. Like they said, hey, find out who he is. And he's like, hey, I found out who it is. It's Jesus. He's the Messiah. You should all follow him and worship him. Look what he did for me. Or if it's like a Judas-like selling him out. There's your guy right there. It's Jesus. He's the one that's breaking the Sabbath. We're not sure. Either way, Jesus' invitation to us is the same. Follow me in repentance. Stand up and walk. Sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. Jesus isn't commanding this sin or, or this man or us to like never sin again though that's our future reality as his people, but he is calling us to follow him lest something unimaginably worse happen. He's calling us to be honest with God about ourselves, to agree with him about our need, and to grow in holiness as he is holy. Over the course of your life, now walking after him or toward him, Fixing your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith, until he takes you home or until he returns. This is what our life is now about, walking towards Christ, following him in everything that he has called us to. In healthy times when you don't hardly have a complaint or through decades of chronic illness, pain, he is good, he is wise, and he is worth following regardless of the circumstances. So are you following him today? Are you responding to his compassion? Are you responding to the grace that he has showed in your life, that he is forcing his way into in your life with greater and greater faith? Do you want to be healed? This is a question for us to consider this week. The having him is simple. It's the wanting him that's hard. Let's pray that he would give us a desire for himself. Father, we confess that we, left to ourselves, want nothing to do with you. We would rather 
walk in the direction that we're already walking. We would rather keep walking away from you for eternity. But in your goodness, in your grace, in your kindness, in your mercy, in your healing power, you force yourself in. And you cause us to look to you. Father, might we look to you with great love. Might we look to you with greater and increasing faith. Might we follow you more nearly until you return or until you take us home. Increase our faith. Increase our faith that regardless of circumstances, you are good, you are wise, and you are worth following. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.